Well, as you know, that is our mission statement as a church. Uh, Jeremiah 29.7, I kind of like how the New International Version has it. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Well, as we've seen, that's a command that's part of a letter God sent the exiles living in Babylon. And when we look more closely at the letter, and that's what we're doing all fall, is kind of revisiting our mission statement. When we look more closely at it, one of the ways we discover that God's people are to bless the city, seek the peace of the city, heal the city, is through our work. And before we take a look tonight at what the Bible says about our work and how it brings healing to the city, I just wanted to make an observation. You can debate this in your small groups with just an observation, but... Christians today seem conflicted uh, or even confused to me when it comes to thinking about work. Some Christians are overly pessimistic about work. They see work as part of capitalism, which they see as part of a fallen evil empire, uh, which is America. And earning a living in this view, say in corporate America or in banking or at Oak Ridge, is is sort of like sleeping with the enemy. And so work becomes at best a kind of necessary evil, something you you just do as little as possible of so that you can get by. Or perhaps uh, you just try to drop out of the system altogether, uh, create a lifestyle that can be sustained through dumpster diving, uh, develop a barter economy. Uh, Normally with this view of work, Uh, making money is seen as a very suspicious uh, pastime. Now, other Christians, I think, are overly optimistic about work. And they take their cue from commencement speakers who encourage graduates to, quote, find a vocation where your deep gladness connects with the world's great need. And the graduates go into a marketplace expecting to find a job that pays them well for pursuing their passions, uh, that they can find good work that will be directly related to their great life mission. Sometimes those jobs are hard to find. The Bible, I think, finds a middle way between these two extremes. And let's begin our thinking about work in the city tonight by remembering why God wrote this famous letter to the exiles living in Babylon. It's about the 7th century before Christ. Babylon at that point is the greatest city in the ancient Near East. Uh, Herodotus, a Greek historian, visited the city. He was overwhelmed and he wrote, In addition to its size, Babylon surpasses in splendor any city in the known world. He goes on to describe uh, these massive outer walls that are 56 miles long, wide enough for two horse chariots to pass, ferry boats cruising down the Euphrates, which went through the center of the city and watered the hanging gardens, one of the seven wonders of the world. Part of the city is always in the shadow of the great Tower of Babel. Some 53 temples and 180 altars beckoned worshipers day and night. Looming majestically over the city from the north was Nebuchadnezzar's palace, considered the most magnificent building ever erected on earth. 
And at this point, when we pick up the story, the great city has been made even greater by her conquests. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's stormtroopers have roared through the ancient Near East, uh, sacking Tyre, Sidon, Moab, and of course Jerusalem. Dragging about 10,000 of Jerusalem's most prominent citizens, uh, perhaps 1,000 miles across a blistering desert, and then scattering them throughout the city of Babylon. And the exiles in the city have been yearning for home. They hate the city. And false prophets have been raised up to encourage them to pack their bags because they're going home soon. That is not God's plan for them. And so he writes them a letter through Jeremiah. And and as we've already seen, he begins with a very distinctive statement. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says, guys, this is no accident that you're here. It may look like Nebuchadnezzar did this. He didn't. I did it. I sent you to this city. Now, what are they supposed to do in the great city? The letter lays it out. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. And these were the the practices of work in the ancient world. Essentially what God is is telling them is, okay guys, you're in this city, I sent you to the city, now get to work, build a house, farm, get into agriculture, do what you were doing in Jerusalem to sustain yourself. Do good work. And why are they to work hard in this new city? Verse 7, because they're to seek the welfare of the city, the, the shalom, the peace, restoration, fullness, healing, prosperity. They're to work hard for the well-being of this city because when it goes well for the city, it will go well for them. Now, historians of the exile tell us that that's exactly what the Jews did. And when I say the exile, I mean the 70 years when the, the children of Israel were in Babylon and not in Jerusalem. John Bright, in his book, A History of Israel, writes, The Jews were not, of course, free but they were not prisoners either. They were allowed to build houses, engage in agriculture, and apparently earn their living in any way they could. In the course of time, many Jews entered trade, and some grew rich. And in the book, Israel in Exile, Reiner Alberts observes, It would appear then that after some initial difficulties, the legal and economic situation of the exiles was far from oppressive. All signs pointed to increasing legal and economic integration. The knowledge that the Babylonian exiles at the end of the exile were able to make a sizable contribution to Jerusalem and the fact that only a limited number were prepared to return demonstrate that most of the exiles had found a way to make a good livelihood during their time in Babylon. So this is God's urban mission strategy. It's at least what we have at this point in redemptive history. God sends his people into the city to bless the city through their work. Now, the Bible will have a lot more to say about urban missions uh, in the New Testament. Jeremiah's letter is not the last word on reaching cities with the gospel, but it is a word that we should not forget, and the word is this. One of the ways that God's people bless the city is through their work. Now, the Apostle Paul will pick up this theme 650 years later when he addresses urban Christians who themselves are living as exiles in cities across the Roman Empire. 
And, and Paul says that there are three ways a Christian's work blesses the city. First, Paul says that work provides for our financial needs so we are not a burden to the city. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is worse than an unbeliever. Now Paul's writing a small church, a collection of house churches in Ephesus, which was a major uh, urban city. And evidently some people were not working. We don't really know why they weren't working, but they weren't. And, and Paul writes and corrects them. And he says, no, you must work. It's important that you work. Because one of the distinctive marks of a Christian is that they are self-supporting. They care for themselves and their families. They take care of themselves. And if we provide for our own material needs that way, then the city does not have to. We don't become a burden on the, blessing, on the resources of the city. A friend of mine puts it like this. The first step towards helping others is not being a burden yourself. I think that's important. The first step towards helping others is not being a burden yourself. Work lets us do that. Now, the biblical writers are aware that some citizens in the community cannot provide for themselves, and they should be cared for. And that brings us to the second way work blesses our city. Work generates resources we can share with the weaker members of our city. Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. One of the primary reasons why Christians work is so that they can have resources to give to the needy members of their city. Paul reminds the Ephesian elders of this in Acts 20, verse 35. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus and how he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. So we bless our city when we work hard, earn some money, and give it away to care for the weaker members of our community. Work gives us the opportunity to be merciful and compassionate. Now, the third way that work lets us bless the city in the New Testament is this. Work allows us to witness to our neighbors in the city. And Paul talks about this in his letter to the Thessalonians, the fourth chapter. Try best to live quietly, to mind your own business, and to work hard, just as we taught you to do. Then you will be respected by people who are not followers of the Lord. So he says, hard work done for the Lord is a witness to our neighbors. And I think that works itself out in two very important ways. We witness, first of all, at work by doing good work. I think that's what Paul is thinking about in Colossians 3, verse 22. Don't just do the minimum that will get you by. Do your best. Work from the heart for your real master. For God, confident that you'll get paid in full when you come into your inheritance. Keep in mind always that the ultimate master you're serving is Christ. The sullen servant who does shoddy work will be held responsible. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't cover up 
bad work. Dorothy Sayers, in her essay, Why Work, puts it like this. The church's approach to the intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. So this is a kind of work that's a powerful witness. When we work this way, when we make good tables, our friends will either resent us for blowing the curve or want to know what's up. We also witness by resting from work. The Bible calls the practice of resting from work Sabbath-keeping. Succeeding at work in the city can become one of the false gods of the city. City dwellers worship this false god with a never-ceasing liturgy of emails, texts, phones, and proposals. And we testify that we serve a higher God when we stop working one day a week to rest and worship Him. So, this is how we seek the peace of the city through our work. Work allows us to support ourselves and not be a burden on the city. Work gives us resources to share with the weaker members of the city. And work allows us to witness to our neighbors in the city. Now, before we go on to some application, what might this teaching uh, say to, to those who are too pessimistic about work? And maybe something like this. Yes, we do live in a fallen world. We are exiles. We are always living in tension in a city that is not our home. But you can't escape this tension. God sent you into the city to bless it, not to withdraw from it. One of the ways that you will bless the city and witness for Christ in the city is to be involved in that whole mess of work. Now, what might God say to those who are too optimistic about work? Yes, work is a way of furthering God's purposes on the earth. But don't have unrealistic expectations about work in a fallen world. Very few people in the history of the world have been paid to do what they're passionate about. If you're one of them, praise God. It's good to try and find a job that fits your gifts and callings, but no job is a perfect fit, and finding the sweet spot can take decades. You can bless the city through your work, even if you never find the sweet spot, simply by providing for your family, giving to others, and witnessing. So what I'm suggesting tonight is that one of the eight practices of seeking the peace of the city is work. Now, what does that mean for us practically? Well, first, those of you who have or will have the capacity to create jobs have a spiritual gift that desperately needs to be put to work in the city. If it's true that God uses work to bless a city, then creating work opportunities is a way to bless the city as well. One of the most generous, compassionate gifts you can give another human being, as Mike shared tonight, is good work. Job creation is a ministry in the kingdom of God. Father Gregory Boyle provides a good illustration of the healing power of work in his book, Tattoos on the Heart. Father Greg worked with gangs in Los Angeles and has for about 20 years. 
He's buried over 168 gang members. He became pastor of the Dolores Mission Church in the poorest parish of Los Angeles in 1988. And he didn't know how to reach the gang members, so he put some weights in the, in the sanctuary, and the, the guys came in and started lifting. <laughs> Well, then in 1992, when Los Angeles riots broke out, a businessman called the priest and said, Hey, what can I do? How can I help this gang problem? And Father Greg took him to an old bakery across from his church. And he said, Okay, buy this and let me use it. And the businessman did. And Homeboy Bakeries was born. (laughs) Now, I had to look up Homeboy. Um, It's a gang uh, person, is a homeboy. Um, so, little suburban boy here, didn't know that one. Um, they've since added Homegirl Cafe, Homeboy Silkscreen, and Homeboy Maintenance. He says that they tried Homeboy Plumbing, but suburban housewives did not like gang members with power tools staying in the house all day. <laughs> Here's how Father Greg describes the impact of Homeboy Bakeries. L.A. County claims 1,100 gangs with nearly 86,000 members. A great number of those youth know to come to Homeboy when they're ready to hang up their gloves. Homeboy Industries is not for those who need help, only for those who want it. In this sense, we are a gang rehabilitation center. Often the homies who come to us are not ready for primetime players. Just released from prison, they're offered what is often their first jobs, where they glean soft skills like learning to show up on time every day and taking orders from disagreeable supervisors. We provide all of this free of charge. We're a work site in a therapeutic community. We are a training program in a business. Once the homies come to feel some confidence in the workplace, they can move on to higher-paying opportunities elsewhere. Also, we give homies a chance to work with their enemies. The place has become the United Nations of gangs. <laughs> So if God gives you the capacity to create jobs, see that as a spiritual gift and look for ways to invest. Well, second, if this is true, that work is one of the primary ways that we're to bless the city, then the church has got to figure out how to support you as you work better. And and I, I confess, I don't think we do a great job at that. We try, but I don't think we do. What are some ways that we could do this? Well, we could celebrate work as a primary way of serving God in the city. Too often the church falls into a kind of dualistic way of thinking about work, and we have a hierarchy of holiness when it comes to vocations. At the top uh, of this uh, ranking system of what careers really matter in the kingdom are martyred missionaries, then missionaries, then retired missionaries, then pastors of large churches, then pastors of small churches. Then you get to social workers, teachers, and counselors. Down in the bottom, bankers, lawyers, real estate developers. <laughs> now, you're thinking, no, 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 that's not true. Well, when was the last time in church you had a slideshow and a testimony by a hedge fund manager <laughs> about how God was using him or her? And so I think maybe we should do a little bit more of that. Maybe for every uh, group that goes and does a mission trip or a service project, we should have uh, uh, an accountant or an English professor talk about their work in sonnets or something like that and how that glorifies God. 
I think we can also keep our programming simple enough so that people who work hard aren't asked to add church life as a second job. Boy, that's hard to do. Uh, sometimes faithful Christians feel that the work that they do all week almost doesn't count and they have to do God's work at night and on the weekends. It seems to me we ought to be as streamlined and simple as we possibly can be so, so that you can really embrace your work as your primary way of being in the world. There, where I go on Tuesdays to study, there's this little country church and it, it, there's a little sign, a yellow sign on the road that says, Slow Church. <laughs> and I... I think I know what they mean. I don't think it's a comment on the, you know, the mental capacity of the church or anything like that. I think, I, I think they're saying, don't run us over on Sundays. But I want to get a picture of me under the sign because I want to be a slow church. Just not, just not a lot going on. You don't have to work too hard to be here. You know, I had this idea for a promotion that's kind of gotten shot down. Um, I, thought, I thought we could put this on a T-shirt. What do you think of this? All Souls Church, we don't do much. Catchy? Will that work? Yeah. Well, okay, that's not going anywhere. But we also need to reshape church structures to support the way people work today. Uh, In some ways, our our ministries are still 1950s economy. Uh, So many people don't work 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, and yet our ministries are at night on the weekend. Thankfully, we meet at night. I think that's a step in the right direction. But we need to figure out how to have ministries for people that work at night and are off on Wednesday and, and those kind of things. We also need to create a mentoring culture where people in the same vocations can support one another. Um, pastors, I think, do an okay job uh, teaching you how to study the Bible and share your faith and pray. But we do a lousy job at teaching you how to be an entrepreneur or a mechanic or a physicist because we don't know how. We never did it. And I think what has to happen is you all have to do it for each other, uh, to come around each other and, and walk with each other and mentor each other in your areas of expertise. Well, third, if it's true that work is a primary way that we seek the peace of the city, I think it also means that God has not abandoned us in our work when we don't have the perfect job. Now, it's significant that God tells the exiles who hated where they were, and one of the reasons they hated it is because many of them had higher-level jobs in Jerusalem and were now forced to start over and learn new trades in Babylon, that God says, look, I sent you there. I put you in this crummy situation. I did it on purpose. Now, I don't want to minimize the the pain that we feel if you feel underemployed or unemployed or overemployed or misemployed. I don't don't want to minimize that at all. That's real pain. We should talk about it and help each other through that. Change if you can. Find a job that's a better fit. Do the tests. Talk to the people. Network. That's great if you could find a better job. But I'm talking to a whole lot of people who can't find the other job. And I'm not an economist, but when I talk to people that are running companies, what I'm hearing is that during the recession, the companies simply learned how to do the same work with fewer people. And so they're not 
the CEOs I know aren't saying, you know, I need a 22-year-old with a communications degree. Where are they? No. They've kind of forgotten about you because they've figured out how to do it without you. I don't know if it'll stay that way or not. But my point is that if you can change, change. But maybe the reason why you can't get another job is because of God. Maybe he sent you to that school with the idiot principal and the goofy kids. Maybe he wants you there. Maybe the best thing you can do tomorrow morning is to wake up and decide to seek the peace of the crummy company you work for and bless those co-workers that drive you absolutely nuts. Now the monks, I think, have something to teach us here. Monastic writers often talk about the spiritual lessons God can teach us when we're bored or stuck or feel trapped in life. Monks take a vow of stability, which means they commit to staying put. Esther DeWall, in her book on monastic spirituality for for lay people, explains what the vow of stability means. She says, monastic stability means accepting this particular community, this place, these people, this and no other, as the way to God. The man or woman who voluntarily limits himself or herself to one building and a few acres of ground for the rest of his life is saying that contentment and fulfillment do not consist in constant change. That true happiness cannot necessarily be found anywhere other than in this place and this time. Now, I know we're not monks, but but I think there's something to learn here. I understand that sometimes we're called to change work and look for new work. Uh, the new statistics say, you know, seven to eight times uh, you, you'll do that in your career now if you're just starting out. I get that. God calls us to change. We're not monks. But what I want you to think about tonight is, is that what's happening in your life right now? Or is God trying to teach you something by sending you into a job you don't like very much? You know, are you the kind of person that is always restless, always looking for the next thing, never content where you are, always think you were meant for something better, could it be that the real problem is not your job, but your heart? Think about that. One person told me earlier this week that they went through this enormous struggle with being content where they were. And for many years, they were a server in a restaurant. And they hated it and kept asking why God had put them there. And now they're a teacher and they look back and they feel like God was preparing them through all that process for for where they are now. Instead of putting all your energy into figuring out how to get out of where you are, put that energy into figuring out how to get into where you are and figuring out what God's doing there. Now, I think there's a, a couple other we'll end with. This teaching that work is one of the primary ways God chooses to bless the community. 
I think it should encourage us when we are lonely or weary or discouraged in our work. Work is hard. And a high vision of work, a biblical vision of work, doesn't mean we have to pretend that it's not. Uh, Studs Terkel has this book on work that's pretty depressing. I wouldn't read it. <laughs> but he interviews all these people and he concludes work is a uh, slow kind of dying. Now, hopefully it's not that bad for you, but even on the best days, if you're in the perfect spot, work will eat your lunch. A young person told me this week that they'd finally worked their way into their dream job and that they'd really kind of bit into this world's great need, my great passion, they connect. She's there. And she says, you know, I thought when I got to that point, it would just be a blast. She said, it's killing me. I cannot believe how hard it is. Now, she's young, and she's going to grow and get the learning curve and, and get a lot more competent and more confident. It's still hard when you're 50 and 60. It works hard, and it's lonely, especially, I think, of those of you that you, know, you have people on your payroll and great responsibilities. And I think one of the things the Lord would say to you is, hey, this is my plan. I put you there. I've got your back. I appreciate what you're trying to do. Well, last of all, I think if it's true that our work is one of the ways that we bless the community. And the way we do it are through those three ways I talked about earlier, by supporting ourselves, giving generously, and witnessing. Then we need to be very careful about, careful about finding significance and identity through our work. And I know that's how we do it in American culture. One of the things I think God is doing in this recession, or whatever we call it now, in all this struggle and angst and tension with work, is I think it's kind of a new reformation. I think God's trying to teach us again not to be defined by our careers. That in the end of the day, I'm not a pastor and you're a teacher and, and you're a home. At the end of the day, we're children of God. And we do the best work that we can do, but that's not our life. And so if you're at a place tonight and you're just really worn out with work and you're frustrated and it's killing you, especially if you're between the ages of 30 and 40, because usually that's when it happens, (laughs) and you're thinking, you know, I was meant for more than this. I was going to do all these great things, and now I'm trapped. And you start to hate and resent the people that are holding you back, and it just snowballs and all that stuff. Step back for a minute. God's up to something here. He sent you into this crummy job. And if you push in, you can meet him in the middle of it. You are more than your work. Let's pray.